The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Okay, well, yesterday I kind of kicked into the, and sort of fired sort of an opening salvo into the concept of this as a, a fantasy world. This is a magical reality, and it is. I'll take that as a given now. Given that this is a magical world, given that this is a spoken world, given that you are magic words sitting on magic words, glued to a big round magic word flying around a star that's made of magic words, made by magic words, not out of, the words weren't carved. Given all that, shouldn't we want to know the one who did it a little bit more? We should want to learn the personality of the creative father. We should want to really understand everything about him as much as possible. And then we should want to imitate him with our own lives. That's kind of where we left it yesterday. But we don't. It's just not comfortable. It's scary. It's unpleasant. And on top of that, when we really get to know God... It messes with our art. It messes with our art pretty badly. If I say the phrase, faith film, or Christian movie, I'm willing to bet that you don't think of Francis Schaeffer and Knickers, or some original 16-millimeter faith film, which actually were amazing quite striking, vivid, you think of something that kind of glows, shiny, it's pretty, the weather is always really perfect, except for when the husband sins, then it rains. (laughs) Hopefully he'll end up on his knees in the rain. And guess what? The sun will come out while he's on his knees in the rain, and there will be a double rainbow. (laughs) This is kind of what, I mean, it's a farce except for it isn't. Once upon a time, a long time ago, I was asked to write a parody of a certain series of books called the Left Behind novels. And lots of people told me, I don't agree with their theology, but boy, are they well written. (laughs) Okay, they're very successful. More successful than anything I ever write will be. So I felt comfortable taking a pot shot. I wrote a little book called Right Behind. (laughs) A parody of last day's goofiness. And it was really hard because I wrote things that I thought were satire and then I read book two and they just happened. (laughs) Things that I had made up as like, ha, 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 that's a really funny parody actually just showed up with a straight face. So I had written a scene where somebody's walking down the hall then suddenly... There's nothing there except for their fillings, which all just clattered on the floor. 
<laughs> Prologue book two, fillings clatter on the floor. <laughs> I thought, oh darn it, I had, to go, I had to go a little bit further. And so it was all, all cotton poly blends were left behind. <laughs> Pure cotton went. <laughs> and your appendix was left behind. So one second you're walking, and the next second your appendix just hits the hallway floor. Just the unnecessary organ. All this is to say, I've been dealing with shiny Christian art for a while. I've read a lot of different conversion stories in fiction, seen a lot in film. For some reason, Christian storytellers don't tend to tell their stories in any way like the way God does. So, the Apostle Paul, self-righteous hypocrite, hero, helps murder a Jewish believer, rigs the court, helps get a man beaten to death with stones. That's Act One. You think, like, which Christian novelist has ever just gone that way? Be like, well, Flannery O'Connor. I think I've always thought that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul's story is a Flannery O'Connor story. And if Flannery O'Connor wrote it, she would end right when he gets knocked off the donkey. Just big blam. Like he'd hit the ground, groan. We wouldn't know if he was dead or alive, and it'd be like, and rap. Done. <laughs> She's very gifted. Lewis writes some great stories, obviously. Tolkien. There's many, there's many Christian writers who do this well, but when we think of the brand, the kind of art that we've allowed to become the mascot of faith art, the mascot of Christian art, it is inevitably way too shiny. Way too shiny. One of the things I've said, I said this morning in a smaller group, and I've, I've said this to many different Christians in different contexts, and some of them were very offended and some of them weren't. I think I can guess which way it'll go here. Thomas Kincaid. Dear Thomas, he paints these little glowing villages. In his little glowing villages, there is no disease. There's nothing. It's very quaint. Everything's very, you know, escapist, weird, sentimental escapism. And you know this because it's always right after a rain. It's very damp and shiny. And there are no bloated dead earthworms in the puddles. Every time I've ever been out after a rainstorm... You run into mass carnage. <laughs> White and bloated and just kind of looking up at you. With their vague light sensitivity. It seemed like a good idea. Just there they are. This is this is God's art. He sends the rain and the worms all die. That's what he does. God invented dragonflies. Underwater. They're, well, they're, they use jet propulsion. They have a very large jaw, which they unhinge and gulp and devour. Mostly mosquito larvae, thank God. <laughs> they swallow water and fire it out of their rear end. Jet propulsion. And they sw- that's the only way they swim. They're just shaped like little missiles, gulping and, and firing, spraying, swimming quite quickly. And then on the inside, 
They turn into something else. Something completely different. They are a submarine. They live entirely underwater. They are a jet-propelled submarine. And then inside of themselves, they turn into a piston-fired, four-individual piston-fired, four-winged, flying object. With compound eyes, I believe they're the only compound eyes in the animal kingdom that see 360. So when they see the world, they see a full ring. They are the only insect that can stop and fly backwards. They've been clocked going 60. And they use an entirely different mechanical system inside their thorax than any other flying insect. I wouldn't say any other. I don't know that. Other than like butterflies and moths and things like that. They use a rubber band system. The dragonfly has individual pistons for each wing. One piston firing. Now, you're an underwater submarine firing water out your rear end. But you just start to feel a little itchy. And so one day, you climb up a blade of grass, a reed, out into the sun, and all of your friends go, no, don't go. You're going to die. And the answer is yes. You're going to die. And you climb up there, and you bake You dry in the sun, and your back splits open, and then you crawl out of yourself. And as you crawl out of yourself, your wings tumble open and unspool, folded very carefully in an incredibly complex way. They had to be, because they had to grow inside an underwater submarine. They grew all folded, tight, origami style, inside your own back. And then you get out there in the sun and you rip yourself open and you climb out and you have this long abdomen that just unrolls. And your wings droop and as they dry, they become very, very rigid and they will never fold again. Do you know how hard it is to unfold something and have it not crease? Every time you kink a hose, where will it kink next time? Exactly there. These wings unfold, harden in the sun, and now, now, well, now you use a piston engine. How on earth? And then eventually, once your wings are dry enough, you fly off, realize it, because you know how. (laughs) You fly off, and if you're female, you know how to lay eggs in flight scooping and hovering and just curling your abdomen and just dipping one egg at a time into the water. And if you're male, you just know how to hunt mosquitoes like the dickens. (laughs) There are fairy shrimp in the deserts of Idaho, in the middle of the desert. These things are like four inches long. They only show up every eight years or so, whenever there's a big enough rain that there are standing puddles in the desert, and they hatch out and swim around. Four-inch-long shrimp in the desert. This is made up by the personality we're supposed to imitate. These things look like the worst kind of aliens. They also have Velcro on their bellies. They swim around grabbing mosquito larvae, again, wonderful, and stick them to themselves, collect them on a Velcro belly for devouring later. I mentioned yesterday bats that God made them up. Yes, he did. He did all of those things. 
And if you are a dragonfly or if you are one of the underwater submarines, if you feel like having big philosophical questions, I hope that you have the decency to keep some perspective. You're an underwater submarine, tiny, minuscule. And as you grieve and mourn for the one who climbs up the reed, thinking, I will never, you're being an idiot. Now it can be really hard, that separation. But man, there's so little vision of the future. Now, why did God do this? Why did he make it painful? Why does he make it have to tear its back open? Why? Why? Well, because is a good enough answer. But it does tell you that God uses pain. He uses struggle. He uses agony. Yesterday I was talking about how this is a spoken world. This is God's story. I hope for a number of you, immediately the next nickel dropped of, okay, what about evil? What about pain? What about suffering? Is that all spoken to? The answer is, yes doesn't exist it doesn't create itself now there's all sorts of theological waters here that are very interesting lots of fun to wrangle and rumble about various theodicies to discuss but ultimately what it comes down to is God always uses trouble trouble always trouble and this is where Christians Remember, shiny Christian film Christians, Christian artists, have a problem. They, they like to use a very little dose of trouble, as little as possible, preferably. And I don't blame them. I don't like trouble. But God uses heaps and heaps of trouble. And incidentally, bad news for all of you going to heaven, trouble's not a result of the fall. Ooh, wait a second. But after I come back from the dead, I kind of wanted to be strawberry shortcake. <laughs> I wanted that kind of plot. Maybe Hello Kitty. Something very sentimental, passive, sedentary. But God uses trouble. Now, how do we know this? How do we know that God uses trouble? Well, he sure gave himself a lot of it. He made man. He took the dirt. He breathed in it. Like, so we're, we're from the dirt. God creates us. We are the biggest pain of anything else on this planet. I mean, unbelievable what we're capable of. And he said, this is my image, and I'm putting them in charge. And he said to the angels, man will rule over you. This, this little bipedal biological inadequacy is going to rule over you, Lucifer. And how did that work? The fall makes sense to me. I can understand Satan's point of view. So John Milton, you're over here, you're an archangel, and God says, ta-da, this is my image, these are my heirs, this man will rule over you. And of course, then you have a war in heaven, you get all the, the struggles of good and evil, 
Was God just shocked? Oh my gracious. No, of course not. He's the one actively speaking to you right now. You, you cease to exist apart from his spoken word now. He wasn't shocked. He gave himself a load of trouble when he gave himself us. And he also says to his son, I have a bride for you. I picked her special. Yeah. Oh, also, she's defiled. She's a whore. She's under a death curse. Here. This is your birthright. What was the son given by the father? Well, the world, broken. A people, broken. A bride, defiled. What was the devil offering? Kingdoms. Glory. All you have to do is bow. God is saying, all you have to do is be crucified. It's like slightly different entrance fees. <laughs> and what do you get? Like, well, Christ is glorified. He gave himself trouble. The Father gave the Son trouble, pain, agony. Why? Because it's beautiful. Because it's the better story. Because that dissonance, that struggle, ending in true resolution is glorious. That's why. Because it's a picture, ultimately, of himself. There's not a standard of beauty that exists apart from God. God is the standard of beauty. What he loves is the standard of loveliness. And he loves to tell stories with trouble. Adam, the perfect man. The first man, here he is. We've got this wonderful story of Adam in the garden. Given someone we assume would be quite beautiful. Um, my brother-in-law has told me, like when he talks about man being the glory of, you know, man is the glory of God, the woman is the glory of man. He was talking about this as like king of kings. It's like glory of glories, refining glories. You know, there's a biblical case to be made. Sorry, fellas, that women are just way better. Like whiskey is better than Coors Light. Good whiskey. It's like that it's, it's more refined, the glory of glories. Man is given, we assume here in this narrative, a pretty beautiful wife. What else is he given? A serpent. Has he sinned yet? Like in this, in this narrative, in this story, has Adam fallen? What did Adam do to deserve to have a serpent lying to his wife, trying to get her to fall under a death curse? What did he do to deserve that? The answer is nothing. He didn't do anything to deserve that. It wasn't a judgment. It was a story. What did he do to deserve his two hands? Nothing. His feet, his eyes, his wife in the first place? Nothing. He was called out on stage. He was summoned forth on stage, and he was given a story. And he screwed it up, which is why we have a much longer, greater, more sweeping story. Adam was given a wife, yay, and a serpent who deceived his wife, who helped trick her into eating the fruit and falling under a death curse. And Adam still hasn't done anything wrong. There is no judgment. So if you want to talk about a moment where anybody could discuss the problem of evil, that would be that moment. 
where Adam could say, okay, hold on. What? She's going to die? Like this wife you gave me, instead of the woman you gave me tricked me, it's you're killing the woman you gave me? Like you, the dragon came? Adam was given a fight. What should he have done in that story? We know what he shouldn't have done. What should he have done? What ought he to have done? What did the second Adam do? That's what the first Adam was supposed to do. The first Adam was supposed to stand there and tell the father, take me instead. He was supposed to die. And he hadn't sinned yet. He hadn't fallen. In this story, he had done nothing to deserve this trouble. But here it is. We have all sorts of troubles. We have all sorts of struggles. We've got backaches. We've got ingrown toenails. Really deep existential problems. Those are, that's the majority of them. But then we have real trouble. Like deep trouble. Death. Cancer. Despair. Betrayals. And you can't think of anything any kind of trouble that God doesn't use in his narratives. You can't. Put you in a box and put you in the ground and let all the other little, all the other little humans stand around and say, how could God do this? Unaware that you're going to crawl out of yourself and fly. You can forget all of that. Pain is here for dragonflies. Pain is here For aphids and ladybugs, pain is here. And I will tell you this, pain was here before the fall, and pain will be here later. But you will be able to handle it differently. It shocks me how easy it is for us to assume that heaven is a place where everyone will have some sort of epidural, just right here. (laughs) I will be numb. I will not feel anything. Like, what possible theological basis do we have for that? Everything leans the other direction. We won't be corrupted by our own fall. We won't be corrupted by our own sin. We will be made new and whole, and we will be ready. We'll be ready for these stories. We'll be ready to engage. But do not think there will not be intense physical sensation. I don't think there's going to be trouble in the way that we all currently operate. But do I think there's going to be trouble, difficulties, obstacles? Absolutely. There's whole like solar systems to tame. There's entire planets that don't have any rainforests. There's all this wasteland. Look up at the stars and realize how much of that is barren. How many planets have we actually looked up close at? How many of them have life? We need to fix that. Like, bring the garden to the wilderness. Bring the garden to the wasteland. And if you've looked at the sky, you should know there's not going to be really an end to that. Do not be shocked if you get to heaven and you're handed a shovel. Like, what? Except for you won't say, what? Because the sin will be gone. You'll say, yes. And you'll glory. Adam was given a serpent. Adam was given a death curse. Adam was given trouble. And he hadn't fallen. Instead of saying, take me instead, 
He said, me too. We have a doctor? And we have some, we have some trouble right now. So let's start, let's actually just, I'll take a beat here and let's pray real fast. Father, we, we thank you for everything you give us, even for those hard stories. We ask for your grace now and for a quick and easy solution to this difficulty here among us. Uh, please hear us and give us your grace. In your son's name, amen. So we're given trouble. We're given a lot of trouble. And the problem is in how we respond to it. The second Adam succeeds where the first Adam failed. You see Adam not deserving a fallen wife, but he didn't deserve an unfallen wife. He didn't deserve his hands, his eyes, his senses, his his world. It's not about what he deserved. He's given a narrative. God the Father looks to his son and says, I'm going to give you this mess, all of it, these people. I'm going to give you Judas and Peter. Man, we love Peter. I'm going to give you people in Denver and Moscow, Idaho, and Mongolia and Somalia and every corner of this globe and every one of those people is going to be a problem. Every one of those people is going to be a problem. Every one of those people is going to have problems here. And Christ claims all of us. So Christ responds to trouble quite differently than the first Adam. Christ says, take me. And he's on the cross not deserving any of that pain. One of the most convicting moments for me in my life was standing in my backyard, I tell this story in notes from the tilt world standing in my backyard, mowing my lawn, throwing a rock and revealing this anthill, just starting to swarm. My son was back there with me, and I felt kind of bad. I was like, ugh, but I need this rock gone. It's like I'm going back and forth. Should I let you keep your world? Should I not let you keep your world? <laughs> <sighs> Apocalypse. I threw the rock. I threw the rock into the hedge. The ants are all terrified, running around, screaming. The sky. Like, who ripped away the sky? I threw the rock. And I, I sat there for a second and thought, okay, I'll just give you an hour to clear out. Because this is important. I have them on my grass. As they have their whole civilization. I'm gonna mow my lawn. So I gave them a little bit. I left, and I figured they would have removed, emptied the nurseries and moved on. But they hadn't. When I came back, they were still there. And they had collected earwigs, which they were decapitating in the center of the mound. <laughs> like, what? So I was standing here, looking at this primitive civilization economically sophisticated, but still primitive. I'm looking down at my son as they drag earwigs into the middle, butts arching, pinching, trying to get the ants, hold it down, and they rip its head off. And they bring in another one. I was like, what is going on? It's like, I'm not an Aztec god. (laughs) You know, it's just... And at first, literally, at first, I was sitting there thinking, look, I'm trying to figure out this narrative... Do they think the earwigs did it? Because <laughs> it, was, it was me. That's like, I've got to mow. 
And I was thinking, no, the ants aren't actually stupid. They're pretty aware. You know, if you, if you smack a nest or something, you're the one who gets bit. They're like bees that way. They, they know which boy threw the rock, usually. So I'm sitting here looking at them decapitating the earwigs, and I'm thinking, do they, okay, I don't think they're blaming the earwigs. Do they think this is going to make me stop? Like, is this some sort of blood sacrifice? Like, this is, I don't know. No idea. But standing there looking at that, looking at these earwigs be scapegoated, it was something I did sort of on a cosmic level for them, astounded me. And I was sitting here thinking, would I be willing just to say, I'll become an ant? Like, I'll enter into this. I'll, I'll let you do that to me. Like, I'll, I'll just come down to you. You can do this to me. You can defile me. There is no blasphemy as deep as the blasphemy of Christmas. God is a self-blasphemer. He became biological. He became one of the, you know, the mud people. Here we all are. Flesh, water, made out of carbon from, you know, star power, all that stuff. The angels, pure spirit up there with their, you know, the archangels, the seraphs, seraphim, glorious, spiritual, and Christ has made a baby in the womb of a teenage girl, born where he has to have his diapers changed, down in that ant nest, all the way down, in that ant nest. When we struggle with any kind of trouble in our stories, think about what he was volunteering for. Like we are a mess, and here he is in this story. And he came into this. I was standing here at this ant nest thinking, imagine being there, being willing to be, I mean, like, and the distance, incidentally, the distance between myself and an ant is much smaller than the distance between myself and the triune creator God. Much, much smaller than that gap. And I'm sitting here thinking, no way. Absolutely, of course not. If somebody said, hey, you could save these ants by becoming one of them, letting them defile you, torture you, and then ultimately kill you. But don't worry, you'll come back as an ant permanently. <laughs> That's awful. I mean, is there a worse nightmare? I don't think so. And that's what the Son did for us. He came into trouble just exponentially, exponentially magnified. The infinite God set his Son to become a biological baby, vulnerable, needing to be cared for, chased by soldiers, riding around this weird marriage situation with Mary and Joseph, born into scandal. And, you know, the curious, nothing good comes from Nazareth. On the road, he's the road trip baby, out of a house, fleeing into Egypt, genocide surrounding his birth, and then moving on. 
God gave him someone to betray him. He gave him a soldier with a spear to pierce his side. He gave him unclean men to die next to him, one of whom would still blaspheme him. There. The Son of God has a death scene. And God says, I'll give you a thief to die with. He doesn't stop. And then he comes back. Everything's going to be perfect now, right? No. Now it's time to start. Now we're back, all the way back at the garden, where the second Adam has now done what the first Adam ought to have done. And he's reclaiming his bride. And as we all know, it's not just an easy process. Individual sanctification, corporate sanctification. Our nation has much to repent of. Every nation has much to repent of. But every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And when he's done, what will he have gathered to himself? What's the prize? Us? It's amazing what he did. God uses trouble. God tells stories with trouble. And we, being part of the trouble, are very quick to complain when we get any. We love to sentimentalize Christmas. Yay, happy, happy. It's like, if we'd made it up, if we'd made that story up, we would be incredibly guilty. The blasphemy of the creator God having to come down here and nurse and have bowel movements and grow and sweat and feel and sleep and have to work with these fishermen is just astonishing. And this is one of the reasons, as a sidebar note, this is one of the reasons why I think we know that this story is not made up by men. How would men tell this story? If a man was like, so, let's see here, I'm going to try to convince everyone that I'm the son of God... How? How am I going to do that? By dying. By letting them rip my beard out. By letting them spit on me. By letting them trap me in a kangaroo trial. By watching a a petty little Roman governor wash his hands and say, what is truth, really? The first pomo. And then letting them drag you up, nail you down to a cross and stand you up pierce your side, and so on. Christ carries his wounds. We are his wounds. He carries us. We are his trouble. And he carries us. How do we carry our trouble? How do we treat anybody who ever walks into our life who in any way puts us out? How do we handle that kid in class whether you're a student with somebody next to you or a teacher with that punk in the back row? How do we handle dysfunctions in church where you're like, I can't stand that family? You wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe kind of like how loud her laugh is. We'll latch on to things like that. Like, no, I don't, I don't care for her. Not a fan. We damn each other very, very quickly. We constantly govern our own lives purely by what will give us the easiest course to whatever kind of passive, you know, recreational activity we might prefer. A lazy boy in a TV, a book, anything. A football game, 
We try to get ourselves to the easiest location possible as quickly as possible. If somebody's getting in my way or is being a hassle, I'll, you know, get angry at a stoplight. Sitting here in my machine, blowing up that stuff from the inside of the Earth's crust, riding around, and even that, it's kind of a little obnoxious, so we, we invented mufflers so we don't even have to hear it. Or hybrid cars, they can just kill you like a panther. You don't even see them coming. <laughs> Silent. I can sit there in my amazing machine in this magical world as a stupid little insect given an amazing machine in a magical world, and I can yell at somebody else who happens to have like rolled a stop sign in their amazing machine. Idiot! Punk! We're ridiculous. We are petty, and here's the joke of it all. That's the point. God needed to stoop, and boy does he, with us. The point is that we're troublesome. Read the Old, Old Testament story in the wilderness. Like, they just got rescued. Rescued from centuries of slavery, and here they are. Like, really? The food was better back there. Are we going somewhere? <laughs> Did you bring enough water for me? <sighs> and if you think you wouldn't be like that in their shoes, then you haven't been paying attention. I know if I was asked to walk across that wilderness and being told, like, it'll be like 40 years. <laughs> okay. Great. Perfect. Maybe let's dance around a calf for a little bit. Human beings are ridiculous. We are ridiculous. But here's the thing. So is God. And we're not as ridiculous as he is. Now I say that cautiously. We're ridiculous and he made us. We're ridiculous and then he's the one who said we're a self-portrait. He's the one who said we are the image of God. He's the one who chose us, made us, and then sent his son to become one of us, to become our Adam, and to die for us, and then to be permanently identified with us. And now, man rules over the angels. Now he sits at the right hand of God the Father, and a biological man with physical body, one who was pierced in his side, one who was put in a hole in the ground, just outside of Jerusalem, is ruling over the angels. He has not abandoned his flesh. He is that way permanently. We are in his image, and we have never looked more like him than now. But we will. Like, we'll continue to grow. We resent trouble. God uses it constantly. Good art imitates that. Good art, Christian art, uses the brutality, uses the pain, uses the struggle, uses the difficulty in the same way that he does. Now, there are plenty of Christians who like to just paint with dark colors and be very noir. And they need to get their grace just, just as light, more light, obviously, than the darkness, but get it onto the same ontological plane as their evil. So on the flip side, you've got the, the movies that are too shiny, well, there's lots of stories over here that are a little too grim. Some written by friends of mine. 
some really well written. But grace is this little tiny hint, this little tiny kiss of sunlight coming through a window. Grace is this little tiny metaphor, while evil is this dark, huge, tremendous burden weighing the characters down. And then over here, evil is, I kind of snapped at the kids at dinner. Repent in the rainstorm. It's like, it's, we have to get them on the same plane. Evil is dark and heavy. Evil is what breaks this world, and we are constantly fighting to repair. As image bearers, we're trying to carry the gospel out and renew and restore. We're trying to imprint God's image more clearly everywhere. Evil is real. Evil, pain, trouble is real. Grace is a man. Grace has arms. Grace has hands. Grace died for all of us. They exist in the same world. And our art, the art we appreciate, needs to do the same. There's so much to explore in this world. So many uncomfortable things to learn about our Father. So many ways in which we need to become more like him. Both in our frivolities, in our laughter, in our joviality, and in our humility, in our willingness to stoop and get all the way down in the muck with other people who are way beneath us. We need to imitate him in that way. We need to imitate his his laughter. We need to be the kind of people who can make up a dragonfly, never having seen one, and vent an elephant, never having seen one. When we're doing that, we're becoming more and more like him. Thank you.